Welcome to the Francisca Show podcast on JewishCoffeeHouse.com, the show where I give a voice to Jewish issues, topics, and people. I'm Francisca, your host. Welcome back. Based on many requests, people have been asking me to use my name I go by every day to be more relatable. When I came up with Francisca, which is my legal name, that was to distance myself or to remove the brand from my personal life. However, if audience members will connect with me and my work and my motivations and intentions for my work more by knowing that I go by Frady, then feel free to address me like that. And this connects specifically because anyone who lives in my town, just like our guest today, does call me Frady. And you've probably heard family members who have interviewed or friends call me by that name. Okay, that's that for the chit chat. And one more thing I wanted to tell you is that after this episode on OCD and mikvah, at the end, we have the son of the guest chiming in and sharing a little bit of his thoughts. So as always, I love hearing from you. If you'd like to join the WhatsApp group, please message me. My email is in the show notes and enjoy the episode. Welcome back to the Francisca Show. Today with us, we have Gail Frankel from Lower Marion. Welcome to the show. Thank you. We've had an episode on mikvah with Carly Khadash. We've had an episode on OCD with Dr. Jet Seif. And now we are doing an episode on mikvah and OCD with someone who specializes and has spent and dedicated a lot of time to studying specifically this issue. And I am so honored to have you on. Thank you, Gail, for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Tell us first a little bit about yourself so we can get to know you, both professionally and religiously. Okay, I went to college for elementary education and then eventually attended Hahnemann University and that's now Drexel University. I got my Bachelor of Science from Hahnemann, and I interned at the Philadelphia Psychiatric Hospital. It's now Belmont Psychiatric Hospital here. And then I worked at Horsham Clinic, where I worked after I graduated in the inpatient for alcohol, drug, and compulsive gambling abuse. While I was doing all of this, I also had an interest in OCD. Now, I had an interest in OCD because I basically have worked on both sides of the desk. I got my degree in mental health, so I, I come from it in that place, but I also suffered from OCD. And at the time I did, the help for it, and the way of handling it was really, I mean, it was very hard to find specialists. They didn't know what to do. There were acupuncturists and there were, you know, that I was referred to in behavior therapy. And then because I had become orthodox after marrying my husband, there were the doctors who said, well, you weren't orthodox before. And, you know, this took place and it affected Kashrit. So that must be the reason. Well, I obviously wasn't giving up my husband or my lifestyle. Instead, I want, chose to give up the OCD. But that, that was the uh, way it worked. And although I did find help 
When I did, uh, I found it with Dr. Foa up in Temple University. I decided that there should be a support group because they used to send me out to talk to interns and to talk to people who were deciding whether or not they wanted to go into treatment. So I found after talking to them that there was a great deal of isolation. People thought they were the only one in the world that had it. And unfortunately, they felt isolated. So I said, let's form a support group and let's have people come. And this way, even after treatment, they'll have support. Well, they were all for it. The only problem was they could not give us a therapist. It costs money. And uh, I did not want to charge for this type of thing. So they couldn't give us a therapist, but they were willing to notify people that this was coming into existence. Meantime, Dr. Jonathan Grayson, who is an expert in OCD, a therapist, a well-known therapist, came and decided to donate his time. And so together, Goal was formed, the first support group in the country, the first Goal support group. And Goal stood for giving obsessive compulsives another lifestyle. And it evolved. It started from five people. We had people coming in from New York, and it grew to well over 30 people that actively came. The group also evolved. We found that the best way to handle the group was we started off with a question, a question that really everyone could relate to. Our first question to people who came in and that were new was, what else are you besides OCD? The reason for that being is many times people felt that, well, you know, they looked at themselves as their OCD. They forgot that they're also a good mother, a good wife, uh, a good cook, a good teacher, whatever, uh, a good doctor. Yes, we had doctors. So it, they just happened to be a person who had OCD. The OCD didn't make them. They weren't just the, the disorder. And we had other questions. We had a list, and they're actually, some of them are printed in uh, Dr. Grayson's book. And the way we worked our group was we started out with a question, we went around, everybody, you know, had a turn, and then we broke into small groups. The first group was a new group. It was taken by somebody who had been in the group for a while and was in recovery. And they explained to the new people how we were. The other groups were also broken into. We had leaders. And the thing was that you took a goal. The goal that you took had to be something you were willing to accomplish. It had to be something that you could define whether you failed with it or whether you, you were able to achieve it. So it was narrow. It couldn't be. I'm not going to wash anymore. That's too large. It had to be like, I'm not going to wash on Monday. When you say wash, what do you mean wash? Um, uh, for someone who had contamination, they would wash their hands, let's say, or a checker. 
you know, would check the windows and the locks and whatever. So they're not going to do it a specific time and a specific, you know, a specific day. And that way it narrowed it. And we could see whether they really achieved it. Now, here's the good part. Nobody could ever fail because if they failed on their goal, we tell them, well, we just didn't set it up right. We're going to set it up a different way so that you can go ahead and you can do this goal. And it seemed to work well. People found that they could do it. We used the phone for support. People would call one another before or after to help them along if they needed it. So there was a lot of peer group support. That's how the goal group was basically. And when was this? What year? Do you remember? I don't know. I think it was 1980, early 1980s. Yeah. And I retired from doing it after about 30 years. Wow. During that time, I spoke at different conventions. And the National had a convent. The first convention was in Minnesota. And they had established a foundation from Yale. And uh, I was asked to speak at it. So that was the very first one. After that, there was Boston and there was where the Grand Old Opry is and uh, Arlington, Virginia, all over and in Philadelphia. And when we had ours in Philadelphia, I was able to have kosher food available. We had a Torah brought in so that people could come in and they could, they could daven. So at that particular convention, I was approached by Rabbi and Mrs. David Kaplan and by somebody from Williamsburg. Both of them wanted me to start a group there. I decided that the, the Williamsburg one was basically a mixed group. I believe in the OCD support group should be just for OCD. So I chose Lakewood, and I actually have been doing that ever since I retired. So we do do it, but since my husband passed away, we do it by conference call. And occasionally I get down there to meet everybody when my son goes down there. So this is basically the history of the Gold Group. We also had the first lecture series where we brought people in, other doctors, to speak about different aspects of it. We also had a newsletter, and we, we had the first camping trip ever covered by People magazine, and we even had somebody come in after seeing that from Kazakhstan for treatment. That's very cool. It sounds like you're leading. Yeah, it is. Leading in your time. Yeah, what would you like to say? No, I was going to say that it's nice that people now see that they're not alone. You know, they weren't alone with this because when this started, this was not spoken about. Nobody talked about it. You didn't even know where to go for treatment at that time. Are you comfortable sharing what OCD habits you were struggling with? Or does it affect every part of your life? Uh, yeah, I can share some. OCD habits, if you don't deal with them, they grow. They enter, you know, 
other areas. So in the beginning, it was washing. And since I had three little children at the time, two 11 months apart, there were plenty of diapers. And of course, I found many reasons to wash for contamination. Then it, to me, it, it went to Kashrit, which is really upsetting because I had never had a problem with it. And all of a sudden, I was afraid that dishes were becoming contaminated, you know, that, I mean, they could have, they probably, they definitely were not, but the point was that in my mind, they might be contaminated. They might be, you know, trace. So the dishes started, because I didn't want to tell anyone, the dishes started disappearing. Finally, the family was on paper plates and plastic. And I had lettuce, I had everything, and it was downstairs. And actually, my family found out about that quite by accident. They were going to use something, and I said, no, you can't. So that was a problem. And that was a problem in finding treatment because I will tell you that the first thing that people hear when, or did hear then, when you say you've become religious is fine, then don't be from anymore. You know, that'll solve your problem. You won't have to worry. Well, that was not the answer and that wasn't good enough for me. So, you know, it was a struggle, but I was determined to find a way. And Temple had started a program, an outpatient program, basically of, like, at that time, it was a six-week program. And it was behavioral exposure and response prevention. So that is, ERP is basically the proven and the best treatment for OCD. Although, you know, there are other cognitive behavioral, but it, it has been proven to be the best. And what that is, there are obsessions, which are the things, the thoughts that you're, you think of or you're the fear. And then compulsions, which is the ritualizing to relieve the anxiety from that fear. So basically, they exposed you to whatever your fear was. It was an excellent program. A lot of people have gone through it. And it's now a CAP program. And as I said, it was after that that they sent me out to talk to doctors and people considering coming into the program. And that's when I noticed that there was a terrible feeling of, I'm the only one who has this, of isolation. And that's when the support group, you know, was formed. Gail, I would love to move on to Mikvah specifically. So let's go into that. I have been going to Lakewood to do the group. And there is a workbook, okay? And the group for Lakewood was specifically focused on mikvah, or w was there a different focus? Specifically focused on mikvah. Okay, so for anyone listening, you are showing us a workbook called the Taras HaMeshpacha Workbook. And it's by Rabbi David Arie Kaufman. And uh, it's a pr it, in this workbook, there's a program for overcoming mikvah-related anxiety. This was in the works. We encouraged him to write it. Now I'd like to see him write one on Pesach, which would be a big help, but I think it would be a bestseller for everyone. But this is a wonderful, wonderful book. We have sent it out free 
to every waiting room in uh, every mikvah across the country. So if there's somebody out there does does not have one, please let us know. You will get a copy to keep in your waiting room. This has worksheets in it from things that we have talked about because in the Lakewood support group, it's a from support group of all women. We, of course, with the from community, there are many things that are a little different. There's mikvah, there's kashrith. Okay, we've got a lot of things that are very different that have to be addressed. So in this, I just want to show you something. He he talks about OCD like, like we do, but he helps you to have a plan. He has a lot of worksheets and preparations at the end of each chapter, how long it should take you to do all your preparations. I really think this is the best thing around. I mean, you know, I, I think it's really the only thing like it around. So I would advise every mikvah to have it and every person having difficulty with mikvah-related obsessions to get a, themselves a copy. What's your connection to the workbook? My connection to the workbook is that it was based on a lot of things we do in group. And since I lead the group down in Lakewood, that encouragement, and as you can see, he dedicated it to me and to my husband. I got to see the rough draft and I encouraged it. And he said he used a lot of things that we use in group in the workbook. Can you give us some examples, some more examples? You shared a few, but I'd like to get some more. The one thing that I find perhaps the best starter to begin with is that people who have trouble with mikvah have to remember that this mitzvah was supposed to accordingly got Hashem wanted it done with joy. And when you are busy ritualizing, and feeling so so much anxiety, you are not doing this ritual with joy. So if you can remember that, as well as knowing you're a from person, I'm not saying that your anxiety will disappear, but that is the object to do it with to do it with joy. Now, Yes, you have to work on it. We encourage working with a rough. You find one rough who you feel, you know, comfortable with and so forth. You let him know that you're OCD. And there are some questions that when you have to ask them, you're allowed to ask them once. But if he has answered it, you're not allowed to keep asking the same question. And the Rav will know, because you're OCD, that when this is just getting to be, you are looking for reassurance from him. And reassurance does not help you get better from OCD. So it's probably one of the worst things you can it's do. It's enabling. It's enabling, exactly. See that? So that's what we encourage. And it is very hard. It's very hard, especially 
in this case, there are a lot of worries, but there at some point, people with OCD want to know that there's no risk in anything they do, that it's perfect, that it's been perfect. There's no, absolutely no risk. That's not the way it is in the world. There's no such thing as perfect. So I tell my, my clients in the support group, only one who's perfect is Hashem. There is no such thing as perfect. They cannot reach it. At some point, they're going to have to learn to deal with the uncertainty. They are making a decision according to the guidelines of their rough, if it's okay. And yes, they're going to feel anxious by doing that. But the more they give in, the longer the OCD will last. If they don't give in to the anxiety, they'll see that eventually it does go down. We have had people going from eight hours preparation in the mikveh down to two hours. That's a big jump in, in preparations. How long would that take? Months? I would say it doesn't happen over weeks. You didn't get the problem overnight. It won't go down overnight. And it also will take practice. You have to practice feeling the anxiety and not giving in. So this particular person, it did take a while. It could take, it could have ta it can even take close to a year, I would say, of really. But when she was down, her voice was smiling. I could hear the smile in it. She was so proud of herself. And she had worked hard to get there. Like I said, not easy, but there is an end in sight. I believe that there's something called being symptom-free. And I say that because it's like being a diabetic. A diabetic, they have a problem, right? They take insulin. That doesn't mean that they're not a diabetic anymore. But the symptoms are under control. And if that can happen, they can live their life fine. And OCD is the same thing. You do what you have to do. And I'm not saying that down the road that it might not rear its ugly head, but you have the techniques to do what you have to do to get rid of it before it gets really bad. If you can live symptom-free, that's fine. If you never have to give in to an obsession and a ritual, that's fine. And most people learn the techniques and know when to apply them. If they're working with the doctor and they've done well, and every time they've had a problem, if they've called and they've just redone their exposures, and then suddenly it's not working. There was one case where they found that this, this woman developed her ritual, her uh, obsessions around the same time during the year. So although she wasn't on medicine during that time of the year, just before they gave her some medicine, she applied her techniques, and she was fine. It just seemed to happen during a seasonal lie. They, they don't know, but as they said, being symptom-free is as good as being cured. Can you share some of the techniques? The techniques are to expose yourself to whatever you fear. For instance... There are many kinds of OCD. There's washing, there's checking, 
There's, you know, like people call poison control over and over because they're afraid. There's hit and run OCD, hypochondriasis. There's trichotillomania, which is a form of it, which is hair pulling. And there's another form, BDD, which is body dysmorphic disorder. Basically, that's where, let's say, you look and you, you think your mouth or some part of your body is ugly. Okay. And that becomes a big thing and you eventually stop going out and you, it, it just evolves like OCD. So for different forms, there are different things. For checking, let's say, we would tell a person that they have to leave the window unlocked or the door unlocked before they go to bed. Or checking would be, they let's say, if they're checking uh, like data processing, people now recheck things on the, that they'd have to just type and then not check. They have to check stove. They turn the stove by the click and they walk away. That way, in their minds, they don't know that it's off. I mean, at some level, they know. They know if they click it one way, it's going to be off. But they still would go back 10 times checking it. What about when things need to be in a specific place or specific order? We're not stepping, you know, when you walk on the sidewalk and there are these lines and you don't want to step on them or you only want to step on them. What's that? Well, first of all, uh, somebody would go in and help them to, let's say, if their things are in order in a closet, to mess them up. I mean, some people have them in alphabetical order or whatever, and to mix them up. And they're not allowed to go back and put them in order or reorder any new things coming in. You know, they just have to look away and put it in. That would be a way. I mean, they're going to feel the anxiety, but the whole idea is they can't give in to it. Also, on the cracks, so they would go out with someone and they would make sure that they do step on the cracks. So it's doing the exact opposite of the behavior. Whatever they fear, they do. Now, it's going to make them anxious. So normally, either... With physical, they physically follow up with a ritual that will reduce the anxiety, or in some cases, mentally follow up to reduce the anxiety. They're not allowed to do either one. Okay, so what they have to do is feel the anxiety, realize that if they don't give in to it, it will eventually go down. And if they do that enough, then they realize that they don't have to give into it. It's habituation. It's, it's a habit that they're do a healthy habit of doing it by not giving into it. Can we go back to mikvah for a minute? What can possibly take eight hours for anyone wondering? And this obviously had to interfere with her life because who has eight hours to do mikvah right. prep? And, and that's how you know it's OCD when it starts interfering with your life, and I'll give you an example of that. But for instance, the hair. So they're not sure it's straight. They're not sure every, every... Then there are no knots. Every hair, there's no knots, there's no frizz. 
So even though you would think you go through and it's fine, there's the what ifs in their mind. Well, what if there's, there's a tangle back there and I didn't get it? So I have to do it again. There are things like doing the nails. That's another big one. They feel that, you know, they have to get everything and there might be something under their nails and you, you know, they do go to all sorts of lengths to make sure that their nails are good. And that can take a lot of time because it's not once or twice. They can spend a half an hour doing that. There's the hair, the body. People have complained they don't know. They could have something on the back. And their teeth it takes a long time with teeth. It does take a long time with the preparations before the, the shower and the, the bath and, and then actually getting out and having a preparation. And it can be very difficult on the mixolating. So there is a chapter in this book for mixolates as far as how to be helpful and how, how to deal. So, I mean, mixolates find it hard to stay for that long. And, you know, it's, they don't always understand the problem. So we also like the mixolates to take a look at this. Also, when they come out of the mikvah, there's also the ritualizing. Did I do it right? Was everything all right? Oh, I found uh, a hair on my arm when I was getting dressed. Maybe that was there when I went in. So it's never over. It constantly affects. So instead of, look, you know, it being something to be done with joy, you know, you're having a really horrible time Experience. with this. We tell people also to set a timer to practice getting ready for mikvah before they actually have to go and to time themselves. You can always use a timer. It will help time you and see how long you're taking. And we try, when we set a goal with this, to start with one thing that they are willing to take. It can't be the top of their hierarchy, but something they are willing to do. And we start with that one item and we then let them work on it and come down. And that's it. You take step by step. How do you address mikvah on a Friday night or on a yantif? Is there any special <laughs> instruction for that? No, but we did have someone who had a bar mitzvah, if I recall, and also had to go on a... Friday night, and they were afraid that it would, it was going to, you know, they were going to get anxious and it was going to take a long time. And basically, they did it within a reasonable amount of time and they were very good and uh, very proud of themselves. So they should be. I remember that. No, I mean, it's just. I'll, I'll rephrase. The, the reason. Friday nights or yantiv can be more complicated is because you're supposed to do the preparations in advance and there's plenty of time right. for you to get quote unquote contaminated by the time you get to the mikvah. Right. So how would someone deal with that information? I think at that point, they have to realize that they're time limited. You know, it's a, it's a thought of another, you know, you don't want to break Shabbos. So... There is, you know, another, 
like you say, chance to get contaminated, but they will somehow push forward on it. They will not feel comfortable. I find a lot of them will put it off, quite honestly, mm. till Saturday night or whatever, because it's just too much to handle. And their husbands realize the problem that they're going through. So unfortunately, you know, there's one thing about OCD. Uh, first, it affects one thing. And then if it'll go to another thing, and if you don't work on it, pretty soon it affects your whole life. It's like you go into a bedroom, and let's say you feel for some reason your doorknob is contaminated. So you avoid that door with the doorknob when you go in all the time. And then you feel, well, the doorknob's contaminated, so I can't take any of the clothes out because I'm not going to touch the doorknob. So then the clothes are contaminated. So now there's a whole bunch of clothes in your life that you're not going to wear. Then you think someone who came in to help you for some reason put something on your bed, but they touch the doorknob to get something out to put it on the bed. Well, now the bed is contaminated. Well, then the person, you know, who had it, well, the bed's contaminated. I can't sleep in the bed, so I'm going to have to sleep in another room. So eventually, it affects your whole life. It limits your whole life. It really limits you and, uh, and how, how much you can live life. The thought of treatment, you know, you might be afraid of it, but the thought is you should be afraid of losing all the wonderful things you do in life more. I think that's true for everyone. Imposing another fear that's greater to overrule the original fear and exposure. Right, right, so far. And we find that, that um, I think I have a statistic here, 65 to 80 percentage get better with exposure and response prevention where with only medicine alone, only 40 to 60. And basically, both of them can be used. We don't discuss medicines in our support group, by the way, because everybody's chemistry is different. So different medicines work on different people. So it's futile to discuss medicines, and you get caught up with it, and that doesn't really make any changes, whereas the behavior therapy does. Many people use the behavior therapy with medicines, which can help you do the behavior therapy. Look, many people are depressed because they have OCD, and it's reasonable. People don't get in the up in the morning and say, oh, another wonderful day of ritualizing and fear. You don't get up in the morning and say that. So, you can get depressed after a while. And the, some of these medicines help with the depression and then, you know, help you to do the exposures. But I will tell you that doesn't mean you have to be on medicine forever. And people should realize that if that's what they're afraid of. I wanted to share something you reminded me of. I saw this video. I cannot remember who did this video. It was on Instagram. She had things you didn't know about Judaism or, or Tara Samishbach, I don't know what specifically she was doing, but that clip, she was asking if you ever knew why they have candies at the mikvah on your way out. 
She said, not because they want you to have a good association necessarily with the mitzvah, but it's because they want you to put something in your mouth right away. So later, if you think something was in your teeth, uh, you could blame it on the candy that you put in right after you came out. Yes, yes. We suggest that too, yes. I forgot about that, yes. So that's something I didn't know before I saw that. We tell people to, you know, to bring it with them if their mikvah doesn't have it, but that that's a good suggestion to have them suggested to the mikvah. But uh, we tell people to bring something with them, you know, that have that problem and put it in. That's a very helpful one, by the way. So you mentioned Pesach. Yeah, go ahead. I just wanted to say that if you're going to seek help from a therapist, find a therapist. There's a difference. First of all, you ask the therapist, does he treat OCD or she? The problem is they may say yes, but there's a difference between treating a hundred people with OCD and someone who has treated like thousands. It's, it's really their specialty. So, I mean, there's some people who are specialists. Dr. John Grayson, his book, Freedom from Fear, is a very good book. He has a lot of newer ones out. I've wrote excuse modes for why people relapse. And he paraphrased and put some in the book. So that's there, along with some of our questions. And as I said, this one. So. And why do people relapse? Why do people relapse? Well, I'll tell you why people relapse. People relapse. First of all, OCD is brought on. Some of the things that can bring it on again is stress. Now, there's good stress and bad stress. There's a divorce. There's a death. But there's also good stress, weddings, bar mitzvahs, whatever, either one. And also when you're overtired, it's important to get rest. That's a trigger. And the main reason is that people will see themselves slipping with something. And instead of with that little slip going back to doing what they were taught in exposure and response prevention and exposing themselves, they will say, well, I'm so much better than I was. So it's just a little, what's the difference? You know, I'll just check once. I'll just watch once. You know, in the end, it becomes a little one, and then that becomes bigger, and that becomes bigger. And before they know it, they're in trouble again. So if you find that you've been in treatment, and that's you know, happen, then immediately deal with the little slip. And if you find that you slip to the point where it's getting really big, call your therapist again and get working on it. It will not take you as long and you know, you know what to do, but it's very important not to let it grow because it grows. You know, you think of it as the gift that keeps on giving. Back to your story, the first time you mentioned that you were dealing with it was as a mother. Were there any signs of it before you had kids or did having children activate that? I don't think it was having children. You know, we've talked about, you know, amongst ourselves in a support group, you know, was it hormonal? Whatever. I don't know why. I don't think research will tell us why. We had done a lot of things at that time when I developed it. We had moved to a new city. 
we had opened a new business, so the hours were different. It, w- it was, you know, a, li- a little bit of that. And I'm very, very adaptable and usually very strong about it. So I didn't know where it came from. And I always was able to say, I can deal with this. I can just, you know, stop this. And it didn't work that way. And I really didn't know who to tell. And to tell you uh, very truthfully, the first psychiatrist I went to asked me, why are you here? And I said, because I can't stop washing. And his answer was, so what's, what's wrong with that? And I thought, boy, am I in the wrong place. And he was very well known. But the point is that people who specialize in OCD know how to deal with it. I do want to touch upon Pesach for a little bit. Can you tell us oh, yes. how Pesach. it manifests? Pesach is a very big one, and I really am trying so hard to get Rabbi Kaufman to write a workbook on it. It is the thing that I find people start worrying about even before Purim. And some people start cleaning even before to, to look around, to see, to get organized. But An OCD person on Pesach, instead of just doing the one thing, they will do it to the nth degree. It will take them hours, hours to do what, let's say, the average person, and I don't use the word normal, because there is no definition of normal, okay? There's a person without OCD, a person with. The average person will do it. Some people clean for Pesach. It takes them, what, two weeks of complete concentration. People with OCD, it can take them months. And then they are still working up to the last minute and thinking it's not done. It's not right. Dr. Huppert, who's another expert in OCD, he's in Israel, always says anything smaller than a Cheerio you, you know, you don't, an OCD person, because they wanted a rule, anything smaller than a Cheerio, because they would find specks, they would find, they would use, they would use toothpicks, Magnum. microscopes. I mean, I, I cannot even tell you some of the things that people have come up with. Tell us, tell us. I'm trying to think. They use toothpicks. On their, their chairs, you know, it's not just vacuuming them. What they do to a dining room chair is unbelievable. It takes hours to do. They, they also find that my husband grew up. One of his jobs was toothpicking, <laughs> cleaning the chairs with the toothpicks. And, but I bet it didn't take him a whole bunch of hours. I did, we did each chair in as, you know, a reasonable amount of time, right? Probably. <laughs> he probably wanted to move on to the next thing. And they spend so much time worrying, like, if something got in, especially if they have children. So, you know, did the children bring anything in after they clean the room? Mm-hmm. Well, does that mean you're going to start cleaning the room all over? You're going to look, you know, you tell your children not to. And you assume they know it's pace out and you're on top of them. But there's... a probability that they brought something in. Do you do the room over? Do you do each drawer over? Do you do the bed over? Do you do the um, the washing? 
Now you're cleaning the house for Pesach. Did anything get mixed in with the laundry that's already done? So are you, did one of the kids throw something in to what you had was clean laundry that you were, you know, folding and, and getting ready for Pesach? There was, there's no end to it. There was no end to cleaning the kitchen and the cabinets, the drain boards. And they all take a long time, but some of the products even, you know, used. And I think the husbands play a big part in helping with this in that, you know, they will be illogical. Many of the husbands are rabbis and they will say, this is good. Now that doesn't mean the person feels good about it. They still feel that that's not authentic. The Lakewood group is for women only, right? Women only. So does that mean Women it doesn't only. affect men? Where, where do the men with OCD go? Well, they started a men's support group. We had a we had a conference down in Lakewood to sort of get this started, and the men's group started down there with a therapist who knew OCD, but the men were more reluctant to come out. It eventually fell apart, so there was no more group for men. You know, it's interesting you mention that because when we started our group here in Philly. We also developed a family group, which which was called FOCUS, Family of Obsessive Compulsives Understanding and Sharing. So FOCUS, the parents could come together and talk because what came out at a joint meeting was the people with OCD would say, but you don't know how we feel. And the family would say, but you don't know how we feel living with it. I mean, there were... There was somebody in the group whose parents said when she came in, she had to strip her clothes off and and change and everything. And their lives were becoming narrower in what they could do because they were asked to do whatever the OCD person needed to help them, which was really reassurance, which in the long run was the bad thing. So they had their own group and that was a good thing. So I think that's good for any group. But no, the men didn't work out with the the group that they had. I don't know if it was still a more of a resistance to come and be seen and be known with the problem. As you know, that there is still a little bit of a, a stigma. Although today with COVID, with 9-11, the rest of the world is finally caught up with us with anxiety and dealing. And a funny thing that I heard of just recently is a lot of the doctors have found that the people who have been treated with exposure and response prevention and successfully and really done well have had less problems with COVID than than most of the average people who, you know, have been dealing it, they kind of look at it and say, wait a minute, they're ritualizing more than we do. We think that's because they know they that nothing is certain. You know, you have your exposures to certain things and you deal with it while the average person now has just built on the fears and it just escalates. So I thought that was an interesting fact. Was there anything else you wanted to share? What I wanted to share was, if you have OCD, get treatment. Don't wait. And I also want to say, if there's a support group near you, 
you should look into that. There are now OCD support groups online, so you might want to look into that. If you're a religious person and you're interested in contacting me about the Lakewood support group, you have my information. And that one is a conference call, so everything is private in a support group. You don't have to worry about that. Thank you so much, Gail, for coming on. I learned so much. It was so nice talking to you. Thank you. I hope it helped. I, I've heard, I heard most of it. I didn't hear all of it, but I can tell you as a child growing up with in a house where OCD was present, as a child that never really understood it. And that, that was a, you know, for me, like looking back now, I'm an adult with my own children and grandchildren, but I would imagine how difficult that was not only on my mom, but on, on my parents' marriage as well. And now like it makes sense as a child, you know, you're told, you know, take your shoes off, wash your hands. And the child doesn't understand, you can't, but and you I also can't understand at that age and growing up what the individual is going through, what in this case my mom was going through. And, you know. I mean, there were times, truthfully, I thought they'd all be better off without me because I couldn't get a handle on this. And it was very, very hard. Yeah. You know? wasn't giving up my religion. I wasn't giving up any of that. You couldn't tell me that. And it was a constant fight. But on the other hand, I didn't wear it on my shoulder. In fact, JNs get red. You tell them you have an allergy. And nobody will question it. But I never, nobody ever knew why the dishes were disappearing. Nobody ever knew why, you know, the cooking got harder. Nobody realized that my goal was to be a mother and to get on with life. And my husband went to work. And the only time, really, one time he complained was we went on vacation. And I started to wash less. And he said, I think you're doing it on purpose just because we're away and you're with me. I said, no, that's nothing to do. You know, that part he didn't understand. But I will tell you that later in life, when I started the support group and everything, he became such a believer. And then I took him to the first convention and he heard me speak and he saw how many people were there with the doctors and all. And he had a whole different feeling toward it. Before that, he really had no patience with it, but he understood and he understood how many people were going through this from different walks of life. We had doctors, we had surgeons who had it. We had nurses on the camping trip. The nurses had to learn how to wash normally. Because as nurses, they have to wash. But they have been taught, you know, you scrub and you scrub. Well, when you have OCD, that's certainly on hand. I know one nurse who used to take a shower with betadine. You know, that like mercuricum, it's, she used to use that for soap. It's very, it can get, you know, it can get very hard. And I have dealt with patients who are like at their last level. And I say sometimes, I wish I could take a picture. When they come into the group, their affect, and when they, after they've been, you know, in treatment and they've had the support, how they look then, because it's like night and day. 
Wow. Mark, any anything else you want to add before we log off? Well, looking back, I can tell you, I don't think I've ever said this, certainly not to my mom, but publicly, how proud I am, not only of the fact how she's overcome the illness, it is an illness, but a lot of things make sense. And we as a family are extremely proud of you. You know, I have to tell you that um, there are some cases where, like, I know someone who checks. Now, her mother used to ask her every day to go check the door, and she had a hard time, you know, checking. So it was environmental, too, in that she was asked to do what she shouldn't have been doing. So that was, you know, that was an interesting fact. But amongst ourselves, we've checked hormones, We've checked. Some of us are preemies. I was born a pound and a half in the sixth month. There were other preemies. You know, there's not anything there that's enough. And they've been doing plenty of research. I should have said on your podcast that people can reach the OC Foundation and give you the number, but you should be able to get that or I can give it to you. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Thanks, Eddie. Take care. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you would like to order a workbook, please email workbook at ragua.org. And I will post that email address in the show notes as well. Ragua is spelled R-A-G-U-A. This is a Jewish Coffeehouse podcast. Check out the other podcasts such as Intimate Judaism, Orthodox Conundrum, Chochmat Nashim, and let my people eat. Please keep sending your messages. I love getting to know you and finding out who's listening to the show. Please help me grow the show by telling your friends and family members about the show. And see you next week. (laughs) 